Pamela Coleman-Smith was an Anglo-American artist who was prolific in the mediums of painting, printing and illustration. An occultist, non-conformist born before her time, she practised synesthesia with an ability to paint from visions induced while listening to music. Often overlooked since the height of her fame in the early part of the 20th century, Coleman Smith's struggle with finances meant that she died in the 1950s without the financial recognition her astounding body of work deserved. You will have seen her recognisable images, perhaps in the Rider Waite tarot deck, now called the Waite Smith tarot deck, and now it's time to know the person who created them. We are excited to give you Pamela Coleman Smith. Professor Elizabeth Folio O'Connor, an Associate Professor of English and Director of the Gender Studies Programme at Washington College, a liberal arts college on the eastern shore of Maryland, where she teaches classes in modernism, 20th century British literature, post-colonial literature, journalism and composition. Her literary biography, Pamela Coleman Smith, Artist, Feminist and Mystic, was published in September 2021 by Clemson University Press and Liverpool University Press. She was a co-author of the 2018 mass market book, Pamela Coleman Smith, The Untold Story. She has published essays and reviews on Coleman Smith and found a secret little magazines. Professor Elizabeth Foley O'Connor, welcome to Heroin City. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. So whereabouts are you? Just... I'm in Maryland, which is kind of on the East Coast. Uh, I'm on the Eastern Shore. So the little part of Maryland away from D.C. that kind of sticks out into the ocean is near Delaware and into Virginia. Yeah. Ooh, sounds... So pretty rural. Yeah, it sounds yeah. idyllic. I'm, I'm one, I want to go. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Uh, we're here to talk about Pamela Coleman-Smith. You've got two books I noticed in your bio. One yeah. of them I couldn't get hold of. It's really hard, which is, which is the first one. And yeah. the second one is uh, a, a combined effort with other experts. Is that right? Yes. It was with Stuart Kaplan, Mary Greer, and Melinda Boyd Parsons. And it came out in 2018. Nice. And Stuart Kaplan recently passed, was actually the publisher of uh, the Smithwaite deck and a lot of other decks. I have that deck, and that's actually my kind of intro into it all is actually via the tarot deck. So as someone who sort of dabbles here and there, I was always intrigued as to where those iconic images came from. And just one day I just randomly decided to Google it, and that's how I came across Pamela and how I was amazed that we don't know more about her like a lot of women in history her name's not even on that rider weight deck some people call it the the rider weight smith deck don't they which i think's right so yes the name has begun to change actually u.s games which is the company that uh, Stuart kaplan ran is still in existence they call it now the smith weight deck um because writer just being the publisher had a kind of ancillary um connection to it Right, we can I, talk more about our, our gendered erasure and stuff in a bit. Yeah, <laughs> please. I am going to ask you, for everyone here who perhaps doesn't know about Pamela Coleman-Smith, to tell us um, a little bit about her, give us some background and her life, and, and why we need to know more about her, please. Sure. So Pamela Coleman-Smith was much more than the graphic designer of the storied 1909 tarot deck that served as the model for T.S. Eliot's Madame Sosostris and her wicked pack of cards in the wasteland. Active from the mid-1890s through the 1920s, Coleman-Smith had a burgeoning career as an American artist, writer, folklore performer, editor, publisher, stage designer, and suffrage activist. 
Her paintings were exhibited at a range of galleries in the U.S. and England, including several major international art exhibitions. She also had the distinction of being the first non-photographic artist beating out Rodin to have her work shown at Alfred Stieglitz's 29, 291 Gallery in Manhattan. Prolific, Coleman Smith illustrated over 20 books and pamphlets, wrote two collections of Afro-Jamaican and Nazi folktales, and co-edited a broadsheet with Jack Yates from 1902 to 1903. Forging her own path from then on, she created and edited the Green Sheaf, that was her own little magazine, from 1903 to 1904, and after its demise, ran the Green Sheaf Press, which focused particularly on women writers. She was actively involved in the women's suffrage movement, creating multiple posters and postcards and helping working class women attend suffrage rallies. In addition, she was arrested for suffrage activities at least once. Um, her letters to friends, patrons, publishers, and gallery owners reveal an irrepressible spirit who was committed to rooting out all types of hypocrisy and prejudice, including classism, sexism, and racism, but who nonetheless did capitalize on racial stereotypes through her Afro-Jamaican and Nazi performances. Taken as a whole, Coleman Smith's prodigious body of work is particularly notable for both its hybridity and its ability to take on and often as quickly cast aside a range of personas and identities. And I think I'll stop there for now. Wow. So <laughs> you've kind of answered the next question, which is why did you choose to study her? And there you go. I mean, you, you've just said why, because all those things that she did, so accomplished. And from my point of view, when I started digging and found out some of these things, I could not believe that we didn't know that name. Yeah, me too, honestly. She just, to me, is just such a fascinating person who represents not just how she was erased from the the Rider Waite deck, but just how she was she did have a fair bit of prominence in the first two decades of the 20th century. And then for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about, she just kind of melted away. She died in 51, but for the last, you know, good 20 years of her life, she struggled financially and did try at several times to publish again and did keep painting and drawing as she got older and more physically infirm, but people were not interested I guess going back to your question about how I became interested in her, weirdly enough, it was, I first became aware of the cards in the late 90s. I was studying at University of Amsterdam, and uh, one of my roommates was very interested in that deck particularly, and was always trying to read people's cards. And she did read mine, and I was really fascinated by the deck and the iconography and the imagery, but I have to admit at the time, Pamela's name was not at all associated with it, right? It was just the writer, Wait Deck, and I just cast it aside. <laughs> and I graduated undergrad. I worked as a journalist for a while, and then I went back to graduate school, and I did my dissertation on novels by Irish and Caribbean writers that feature women in the city. <laughs> and as part of my defense, it's like one of the questions you know in advance, is always how would you turn this dissertation to a book and who would you add? And I had a lot of answers and my dissertation was focused on the teens and the 20s, a little bit into the 30s. And I had a lot of answers for the 40s and the 50s, but I was really struggling, especially for writers connected to the Caribbean for earlier. And I started Googling as one does even back in 2011. <laughs> and I found Pema Coleman Smith's Anansi stories, which had been partially digitized at that time. And I was just 
fascinated. <laughs> and I got a not a great copy of it through Avazad. I have to admit that it's a published. And I started trying to find out everything I possibly could about her. As somebody who studies modernism and especially modernist women, right? I would just couldn't believe all of the things that she was engaged with. Two of the other women in my dissertation was Jean Reese and Kate O'Brien and Pamela being a little bit before them. It was just very fascinating to me to see all of the common threads in their struggle to get published, to gain recognition. And of course, there's different specificity for each three of these women, but how they were all erased, some of them for less amounts of time than others. That kind of brings me on to the sources. So obviously her work is out there. Um, mm-hmm. But you found out a lot more since. So what was your journey into the sources? So it started slowly. <laughs> I have to admit, I was a visiting lecturer for two years before I got this full-time job. And so I didn't have the time right away to devote to trying to track everything down. One of the first things I did was to try to get a full run of the Green Chief, which was her little magazine. And at the time, there was only two universities in the States that had them. And uh, one of them was on the West Coast, which was very far from me. And the other one was at Dartmouth, which was relatively close to where I was. I called them. I called the special collections librarian. And I was like, you know, this is what I would like to look at. Is there any possibility of me coming to look at it? Or is there even any possibility of you sending it to my university so I could spend some time with it? And I had explained who Pamela was. And she's like, sure, Uh, (laughs) we can send it to your special collections. It was, and this is another kind of common thing with Pamela. It was not actually at the main Dartmouth research collection. It was at a storage locker at another location. And this happens all the time with Pamela's stuff, because again, people don't know who she is and they just put it in a place where they have it, which is great, but it's not easily accessible. A couple days later, she called me back and she's like, there's contributions by Yates and Sig and Lady Epestra Gregory, and it's beautiful. And I'm like, yes, because I had seen pictures of it uh, before that. I had seen bits of it. New York Public Library now has a full run, but at that time, they only had a little bit of it. And I was like, yes, it's it's amazing. And I really thought she wasn't going to send it to me, but she did. Uh, <laughs> and I was able to have it, I think, for about a month. I even brought my students there, and they wore gloves, and they went through it. And one of the one of the things that fascinated me, other than it was all hand-colored, so it was just so gorgeous, is that the paper Um, Because it was all handmade paper, and it was super thick, and it had not really oxidized at all. I have have done a fair bit of periodical research going back into, you know, like maybe the 1870s and definitely the turn of the 20th century. And so often you look, you handle this paper, and you're trying to be so careful, and it's all crumbling to bits, and it's all yellow, and it's um, not great quality. But the green sheaf is just... It's in pristine condition. <laughs> Upside of it being put away, it's perfect condition. So now we're talking about it. We can, we've got something really great to look at. Yeah, they were bound um, and they were all, you know, preserved. But the paper itself is just great. And as more people 
have been working on Pamela and talking about Pamela, right? The growing increase in the tarot deck and especially the Smith Wave deck has, I think, given more attention to her and more libraries have the full run and the Yellow 90s Project, a really great website that has digitized it too and you can access it online. So you alluded to a few things I want to pick up on. You've mentioned Yates and this is another reason why it's so surprising that we don't know that name. It's not more familiar to more, more people is that she was in really interesting creative circles in London and she was born in London. She went out to the Caribbean, am I right? And then to um, America, but her father was American. Am I right? Actually, both of her parents were American, and she actually, she was born in London, um, not too far from Victoria Station. Um, She lived in a couple locations outside of London, and then when she was about five or six, they moved up to Manchester because her father was an auditor in a mercantile company, and uh, they were there until she was about 10, and there were some financial problems, and uh, she actually, they left Uh, relatively quickly there were some court cases and they went back to New York because on both sides her parents were connected to really well-known New York Brooklyn families on her father's side Cyrus Smith was the first elected mayor of Brooklyn he was also a state senator from New York he owned a train company, a ferry company. Um, He helped establish the first hospitals and schools in Brooklyn. Now it's um, a borough of New York City, right? But at the time, it was kind of an independent entity. And on her mother's side, the Coleman's were artists. Her uncle, Samuel Coleman, was a pretty well-known Hudson um, landscape painter painter and etcher. He collaborated with Louis Tiffany. Her maternal grandmother published many fairy stories and uh, poetry collections, mostly focused on children. And her maternal grandfather owned and operated a, a very important bookstore and publishing company in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And actually on both sides, but especially on her mother's side, the families were Swedenborgians. And that early exposure to mysticism, I think, was also very important to Pamela. And we can talk a little bit about that if you're interested. But yeah, when she was 11, she moved to Jamaica. Her father took on a role as auditor of the West Indian Improvement Society, which was a group that was made up of American and English investors that was going to extend the railroad in Jamaica. And she lived there off and on until she was about 18. And then she uh, came back to the States. And at what point was she writing the the stories, the Jamaican folklore stories? So she actually started collecting them when she was about 14 or 15, we think. She talks a little bit of this in some letters that she wrote to her cousin, Mary Bobby Reed, who was living in Brooklyn. And uh, she would travel around the countryside collecting these stories because um, she wasn't the first to collect them. There were, in the 1890s, there were several... American and English, mostly women, who did begin to transcribe these stories. She was the first to write them in native Creole, or to try (laughs) to approximate it. And she was also the first to draw a Nazi. She has a lot of illustrations of the spider trickster figure. Before she published her first collection in 1899, which was published out of New York and meant for children and a mainstream audience, mostly a mainstream American audience, she had actually published two transcriptions in an academic journal in 1896. 
Yeah, when she was about 18, I guess. Was that when she went over and started training in America? No, she actually was training. She started at Pratt before that. She started at Pratt in, um, I think it was 1894. And she did a couple semesters there because Pratt back then wasn't like an art college, right? Like they had different training programs and some adults did take classes there, but she started in the kind of what we would call now like a high school or a secondary school. Um, And she did focus on art and she was part of um, Arthur Wesley Dow's first class at Pratt and she took him several times and he was an important early mentor. It's a little unclear exactly how much time she was at Pratt in person, I do the letters to Mary Bobby Reed start when her mother died in August of 1896. At that time, she was still in Jamaica, but she had she had been at Pratt before that. And then we have records through the Pratt Institute monthly that are like little newsletter that she continued for a little bit and then she left. So then she traveled a little more with her, her father, am I right, after her mother died? In the summer of 1898, her and her father went to England and Ireland. They met Bram Stoker actually in Cornwall near Tentacle Castle there. And that was where they first got a uh, relationship with him. Her New York family was very focused on the theater and she had gone to the theater many times when she was living in Brooklyn. And one of her cousins, Robert Gillette, he was actually a pretty famous actor and probably most well-known for the first popular stage representation of Sherlock Holmes. And it was actually Coleman Smith who did the illustration or one of the illustrations in a program um, and has him with like the messy, all the rings, the smoking jacket, the pipe that became so iconographic to him. It does seem to be that was something that Gillette used or how Gillette interpreted him. She was the first to illustrate. illustrate that. It was through meeting Bram Stoker that when they came back to the States, she started attending rehearsals of the Lyceum Theater Company who were in New York at that time. It's the first time we believe she met Ellen Terry. She probably briefly met Henry Irving when she was in England, but it doesn't appear that she met Ellen Terry. They did travel to Ireland briefly. They did not meet Yates then, but they met John Yates. William Butler Yeats's father, and he has a famous assessment of her. He was very dismissive of Pamela and her father, mostly because they were Americans, but also because he couldn't place her. I should say as well, for those that that aren't aware, Bram Stoker at that point was um, the manager at the Lyceum Theatre, wasn't he, in the West End? Yeah. And he actually lived above it. Yeah. And at this point, he was... I think when they first met him, he was just finishing up Dracula. And then by the time of the fall of 1899, he had finished it. And so Coleman Smith did go on to illustrate The Lair of the White Worm many years later. I've not found any discussion of the novel from her point of view, although she did do a caricature of him. And it's called Brammy Joker. And he's dressed as a bat. Thank you. Amazing. All right, I found it. Pamela Smith and father are the funniest looking people, the most primitive Americans possible, but I like them much. Her work, whether a drawing or the telling of a piece of folklore, is very direct and original and therefore sincere, its originality being its naivete. I should feel safe in getting her to illustrate anything. 
And I should say that she visited Yeats's father because she was interested in illustrating a collection of Gaelic mythology for children. Again, this is John Yeats. She looks exactly like a Japanese. Nanny says this Japanese appearance comes from constantly drinking iced water. You at first think her rather elderly. You are surprised to find out that she is very young, quite a girl. I don't think there's anything great or profound in her or very emotional or practical. And we probably could talk for an hour about that quote. <laughs> so uh, judgmental. Who gave him the right? But there you go. Wow. And, and those kind of assessments of her crop up over and over and over again. And it speaks to how so many people, I mean, here's an Irish, Anglo-Irish person, but um, so many people, English people, Irish people, people in the States had huge trouble trying to figure out and place her. Right. Yeah. Make it yeah. easy for themselves. Yeah, of course. And it's interesting now when you see pictures of her, you know, she is wearing certain costume or well, I say costume, just clothing from the era. But you, it's true. She's very individual looking. I was going to say, sometimes she actually is posing in costume, like the cover of this book. She's in costume for um, her Afro-Jamaican Anansi performances. She would give those performances. And so she, a lot of the photographs and paintings of her that survive are in those outfits. However, there are other surviving photos. Gertrude Cassebeer did a, uh, who also studied at Pratt at the same time, she uh, did a famous photo. There's other ones that were published. And so to me, looking at her, she very much looks mixed race. And we don't know a lot about her origins other than on both sides. The parents who are listed on her birth certificate are extended from these very white Brooklyn aristocratic families. There are some strangeness, I guess I could say, about some of her origins that are her birth certificate. Uh, she was born February 16th. It wasn't actually posted until the end of March of that year, which was evidently a little unusual even for that time. However, her birth was announced in a local London paper a couple of days after. There's a Brooklyn newspaper who did a big spread on her in 1904, the Brooklyn Eagle, talks about her sisters. <laughs> and there's no in census records. I've done a fair bit of digging as much as you can. And I'm so grateful that so many of these records have been digitized. She's listed as the only child of her, her parents. There does appear to have been a brother a few years before when they were living in Brooklyn who died very young. I think he was not two. You know, unfortunately, that wasn't that abnormal. But sometime between the early 1870s and 1878, the parents moved to London, and that's where she was born. You mentioned a little bit about the fact that she um, kind of played up to some racial stereotypes sometimes. So do you think there was an element of that in, in the costume she was choosing to wear? And, and where did that come from? Was that to, to turn heads? Was that to get attention? What, what do you think? Did that help her when it came to being recognized and, and known at the time? Because she was known at the time, wasn't she? Yeah, no, people did definitely know her. Mark Twain attended one of her performances in 1907. Uh, I think it was a New Year's Eve performance in New York City um, and talked at length about how great she was doing these Anansi performances. It's hard to know the exact motivation. And probably in most things, there were several elements, right? There is a fair bit of evidence that even before she started performing these Anansi stories, she appears to have started doing them at her weekly at-homes 
shortly after she came back to London. So she came back to London with Alan Terry in the spring of 1900. Her father died in 1899, and her relationship with her American relatives was not great. I have not been able to figure out exactly why, other than just some disparaging comments about how limiting they are. <laughs> Probably they wanted her to get married. Um, they weren't very excited about her pursuing her art. I'm assuming. I don't know. And she did stay in contact with some of them. But when she left in 1900, she didn't come back to the States until 1906. And then when she got to London, she toured with the Lyceum Company for most of that year. And then around Christmas time, 1900 into 1901, she settled in a flat in South Kensington that was uh, connected to a relative of Ellen Terry's. And uh, it was actually supposed to be haunted. But she started giving these at homes, right, where her friends would come and she would tell these stories. She had a miniature theater going back to her time in uh, Jamaica where she would make up stories and give performances. She did it in Jamaica. She did it at Pratt. And that interest in performance, I think, was just always something that she was fascinated by. And she also, I think, was really fascinated by these Afro-Jamaican stories, especially some of the gender fluidity with Anansi and then some of the other secondary figures. And that's something that is much more prominent in her uh, retellings of these that she publishes on her Green Chief Press in 1905. It's called Chim Chim. Also digitized also wonderful. Uh, I do think through telling these stories, she became, as one does, right, really fascinated with the characters and their interactions and kept wanting to push them and make them her own. I will say that Pamela was always trying to promote herself and her work and really struggled to stay financially afloat. Her father had a lot of financial troubles. The West Indian Improvement Society collapsed. He was named in some of the suits about that collapse, but he died of a heart attack. He was in his mid-50s, so he wasn't that old, in December of 1899. And so I don't know for sure, but I don't think she had a large financial legacy from her parents. And so she was kind of on her own. <laughs> and she had achieved some success as an illustrator in New York from 1898 to 1899. And she had a lot of projects, but due to a lot of the, I would say, unfair publishers agreements, it appears. Again, it's always one-sided because I'm reading about this in her letters, right? I haven't been able to find the agreements themselves. But it appears that she felt very strongly that she did not get the royalties that she deserved. And she was constantly trying to contact the publishers to get more of these royalties. And this continued when she was in England as well. I will say that I found a reference in a letter from Ellen Terry to her son, Gordon Craig, about Coleman Smith's business acumen and how she was always doing things like in addition to her illustration project she was making lampshades and other kinds of textile designs but she did say to her son Ellen Terry said to her son that Pamela is paid only pennies you know basically saying that you need to be more industrious like Pamela but at the other hand Pamela is not getting the money that she deserves Ellen Terry herself who was very helpful and very, they had a close relationship for a good chunk of Pamela's time in England before Terry's health declined and she didn't really know people too well for the last decade or so of her life. Um, she even called Coleman Smith a Japanese toy, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, I think early on Coleman Smith internalized that she was viewed as an other and she was trying to find ways to make a living. And audiences in England and also in the United States before World War One were really fascinated by these Nazi stories. And so many published accounts thought that she was Jamaican, Afro-Jamaican. And there's uh, some fascinating language in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle because they knew, right, that she was connected to this family. But they're like, she portrays these characters. She is, you know, and it's this weird kind of trying to reconcile the origins of Coleman Smith that the reporter knew about versus how they looked at her and thought she was an Afro-Jamaican woman Mm -hmm. telling these stories. Yeah. So she had several business outlets, like you said, the magazine, but she had a studio in Westminster, I read at one point, so, which is really yeah. fascinating. It's not in existence, that building anymore, is it? Yeah. I was looking for it. <laughs> she had studios and residences all over. She actually had one across from Harrods, very posh apartment now. Um, and that's where the Green Sheaf store was. I didn't go to the one in Westminster, but a couple years ago, I went all around trying to find as many of them as possible. And most of them, I think, were either bombed out during the war or just taken down. And they have all these modern apartment buildings. Yeah, that's what I found mostly. But the one in Knightsbridge is still there. Great. It is. Does it have a blue plaque? No. There's actually a movement by Susan Wands, another woman who has published some novels about Pamela Coleman Smith to get that blue plate. And if I can give you the link, because we've been trying to get enough signatures. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely push that. Because I was looking. she definitely deserves one. Yes, and I was looking. And absolutely she does. So it's kind of the double-edged sword, isn't it? She was prolific because she was an amazing creative being, but she needed to be to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why ultimately she did so many things for so many people. And famous names, you know, are in there. We have this body of work. But the tragedy is, like so many amazing artists, she never was recompensed for that. No. So it's, we have so much work, but then she never really was recognised. But at the time, people did rate her as an artist. She was employed a lot. So she really, she needed a decent manager to come along and go, yeah, I'm going to look after this for you. But it never really happened like that, did it? She didn't have a husband or a father or a male figure that was kind of managing her career. And unfortunately, at the time, for a woman to be trying to do that, herself. There are definitely some exceptions, right? And whenever she did have an um, an influential male mentor like Gates, like Alfred Rosalie Dow, like Howard Pyle, who was an important illustrator in the United States at the time, um, who did take some interest in her work, she would also eventually get frustrated at them trying to control her and trying to tell her what to do. (laughs) Famously, that was the case with Yates. Ellen Terry definitely did step into that role to some degree, but she was also really busy herself. Edie Craig and Chris St. John, Craig's partner, were close friends and collaborators for many years, but they were also struggling at the time, or at least Edie Craig's career did eventually take off during her work for the suffrage movement and then after. But at that point, Coleman Smith was involved in the Pioneer Players Theater, but then moved to Cornwall and kind of distanced herself from a lot of those people too. There's a great quote 
that Colin Smith wrote in a letter to somebody about how feeble females can get along in the publishing industry because they are willing to kind of take direction and do what they're told. But she wants to do her own way, right? She had a vision and she wanted to pursue it. And honestly, she was able to accomplish a fair bit in a pretty limited amount of time. And she's so distinctive. Like that vision, like her style is really recognisable, no matter what the medium. And I always think that that's astounding. So someone that was really, like you say, individual and strong and single-minded when it came to her creativity, it shows, it's there, it's in the body of work. So, you know, we're talking about her now. It may have taken a little while to kind of come back round, but she's, she's so prolific. It speaks for itself if people do the digging which is great. Let's talk a little bit about her time in Ireland then with Yeats and the Mm -hmm. influence he had on her spirituality and her journey in that sense, because I find it very interesting that she went on the journey she did and then ended up converting to Catholicism, which I'm like, that's an interesting twist at the end. But let's talk a little bit about that if we can. Yeah. And on the surface of it, it does seem odd, but... Actually, I don't think it is as odd as it seems. I actually think it makes a lot of sense. And 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 I will say, I uh, Stuart Kaplan very lovingly showed me his whole archive, shared with me his archive, and I visited it in Connecticut a few times. And one of the things he had in there is uh, Coleman Smith's Bible and her hymnal that she had at the end of her life. And in it, she has all of these drawings of Mary and angels and Jesus, but she also has pentacles and different tarot iconography, right? And it shows that she did not view these very different spiritual frameworks as separate. She viewed them as a continuum. And I really do think that began with her early exposure to Swedenborganism and that direct a religion that right now very few people know about. But at the end of the 19th century, both in the States and in England, was very popular. And there was a community of Swedenborgians actually in London, but also a very large community also in Manchester. And unfortunately, I have not been able to find specific records that show that her family was a member of the Manchester community. It does appear that they were members of London and also in Brooklyn. But there's enough references in those letters to her cousin when she was in Jamaica talking about Swedenborgianism ideas that it was something that she was exposed to. And that direct connection with the spirit world is one of the kind of distinct, uh, how do you say it, distinct flavors of that kind of, because it is a form of Christianity. And she became aware of Blake, who also famously would have tea with, you know, various saints (laughs) um, later. And there's a lot of connections between William Blake um, and Coleman Smith and their work. I think Blake was an important influence on her work, especially her early work, but you can see it also in the tarot images as well. And when she came to England, she met a lot of people actually who were part of uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Yates was one of them. Yates was actually not her sponsor into the organization. It was actually a woman by the name of Mrs. Fortescue who was connected to Ellen Terry's extended family, it appears. And she was her sponsor when she joined in the fall of 1901. And Coleman Smith 
We don't know a whole lot of her interaction with the group. Um, she never advanced beyond the Zelator, Zelator level, which is like the level beyond the initiate level. So she did not have a lot of direct exposure, probably, to a lot of the more arcane aspects of the group. She did it appears, talk with Yates about the tarot iconography and also, of course, uh, Wait. We get most of this through Wait's accounts, and they are after the fact, and they're kind of very dismissive of her. They call her Draught's woman, and that you know he had to tell her what to do, basically. Just to pick up on what you're saying, the imagery was there, the iconography was there. It was within her creative output anyway. And then mm-hmm. Wake came along and maybe saw the, the pound or dollar signs. And this seems to be a pattern in her life anyway, that people come along and kind of exploit what she's capable yes. of doing, but it's there already. So that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that twist. So yeah, continue, please. And one of the things that I did find is that she had these three exhibitions at Steglitz's uh, gallery in New York. And Steglitz was go on to become a huge promoter of artis- uh, modernism in the States. But Pamela was the first non-photographic artist that she actually ever exhibited. And some of the designs that she did for that exhibition, including some of the promotional materials, have a lot of connections to the iconography of the tarot cards. And that would indicate that she was thinking about this material well before she did this project in the fall of 1909. And the famous quote is that she wrote to Steglitz is that the tarot cards was a big job for very little cash. And it was the idea that she did it in like two months. (laughs) And she probably did some of it in that kind of compressed period of time because she was in the States and then she went back to England. But I really feel, and there's a lot, I talk about this at length in my book, that we haven't really talked about her music vision paintings that she also started um, in 1900. And I do think there's a lot of connection with them and her tarot iconography and that in many ways she viewed it as one in the same. Um, She also probably started her conversion process either right after or possibly even before she started working on these, the tarot deck, because she converted officially in 1911, but it's a long process to convert to Catholicism even back there, back then, probably at least a year and a half. And she did have Chris St. John, Edie Craig's partner. She had converted. There was a fair bit of women and men in the early 20th century, in England especially, who were very interested in Catholic mysticism. And even Wade himself, I mean, he never converted. His mother was a Catholic. He was interested in some of the more mystical aspects. So there's a lot of bleed through. Unfortunately, what survives is some of the more dismissive comments. There's a famous dismissive comment by Yates's sister, Lolly, about how after Pamela converted, she was no fun and she just had her boring Catholic friends. <laughs> but there's a lot of class privilege, but also religious privilege. The Catholic-Protestant divide especially for Anglo-Irish, was still huge back then, right? And of course, Pamela was not Irish or English. I mean, she was American, but 
you know, there some of that I think bleeds over. So two things. One, anyway, the, the connection between mysticism, historically, it's always been intertwined with organised religion, with, with Catholicism. With It's always been present going back before the Reformation. It was very much part mm-hmm. of the everyday life of people. So that it does actually yeah. make sense in that respect uh, so talking about her paintings to music what's the term her music visions yes yeah and so um and honestly when we talked before about how pamela was known at the time for her afro-jamaican and nazi performances and she was but she was actually written about more in the press for her music visions and i don't know if you can see this this is her sea creatures this is the cover of the book she had many many drawings and they're gorgeous watercolors in full color of uh, women in water women in sky and then later women as trees i talk about this there's a progression as time passes and there's some others women um in um and kind of androgynous figures as well in in different kinds of landscapes. And so the story goes that at Christmas 1900, she was with Ellen Terry and her children, and Gordon Craig plays, I think it was Beethoven, um, on the piano, and all of a sudden there was an opening in her mind, and she visits this other world. She talks a lot about these music visions. She actually wrote up different accounts that were published in some magazines, actually found the account in an archive. Of course, some of the magazines kind of change things a little bit to romanticize certain elements. She does talk a lot in these published accounts and in these interviews about how she almost has no control over it. However, (laughs) it does seem, looking at the whole body of work, that there's a lot of connections between them. And of course, she would listen to music and she would sketch, but then she would go back, right? And rework it so there was an art an important artistic control that she just never talked about and never emphasized and after the initial fascination of this because again there was so much interest in fairies and the occult and other ways of seeing in the early 20th century right especially before world war one there was a lot of interest in this but again and it's so easy to kind of retroactively benefit. She was just a better self-promoter. <laughs> you know, maybe it would have been different. The thing is that there's, I think, a lot of artistic work going on. The music and the entry into the other world of spirits and fairies was definitely a part of it. But there was also a artistic element of control that was shaping this too. So it's coming through. She's the conduit at the end of the day. If she's channeling mm-hmm. something, it's still going to be her hand and her vision in the end. I think it was in the Stuart Kaplan book that came with one of the special edition decks yeah. where yeah. it showed some of the black and white imagery she'd drawn to some classical music. And I can't remember the name of the composer. I want to say Chopin, but I don't know if it was. Um, there's a whole bunch. There's some to Chopin. There's there's like literally hundreds of these. It's black and white because those are platinotype photographs but they were all done in color oh interesting but didn't one of the composers actually say it's like she was in my brain basically yeah yeah you see and she met him and he she actually went to paris and drew to his music as he played and he helped she actually had a kind of small but burgeoning career in Paris as well in the late 1910s, 1913, around there. The Ship of Dreams is the famous one. And actually, I'm looking up some of the stuff and it's at the Tate as well. 
Yes. They have some of her work. They actually, just in the last few years at the Tate, have uh, several of Pamela's things. I don't think they're on display unless they were recently. What we could do is we could campaign at the same time as the blue plaque for the Tate to do an exhibition. It would be amazing. There are, the archive at the Victoria and Albert Museum also has a bunch of her drawings, actually. Some of them are gorgeous. Um, And they're, again, just like in their archival boxes. It would be not that hard to, for the Tate or some other museum to put on a, like a retrospective because yeah. there really hasn't been one um there's one in the states in like literally the late 70s um melinda boyd parsons uh who is an art historian uh, was really influential uh, at getting her work known and trying to begin that process um and th- and there was a few pamela Um, images that were included in a traveling exhibition that went, I don't know if it went to England, but it went to several stops throughout the United States of, it was called Stiglitz and his circle. And it was mostly focused on Georgia O'Keeffe. But there was understandably so, right? I I don't at all want to (laughs) diminish O'Keeffe. But O'Keeffe, interestingly, was just a little bit younger than Coleman Smith and attitudes had changed that much. And she also was able to work to a different person, right? With a different mentality, had a very different background, but she worked with uh, Arthur Wesley Dow, not at a, a Pratt. He had already moved to Columbia at that time. And then also Stiglitz, of course. Right. And, um, you know, I think it's fascinating how she was able to cultivate such a great career. Right. Um, and Coleman Smith really wasn't. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think it would be great to have a full Coleman Smith exhibition at some time, at right. some point. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of rounding us off now to be able to talk about what she's left behind because people know about O'Keefe and they, they know about her work. You only have to want to know a little bit more about Pamela Coleman Smith and it all unfolds in front of you and you can see all of these things and then you start to realise that actually she was prolific and there, there are references mm-hmm. to her and that you have probably stumbled across her imagery one, one way or another in your oh, everyday yeah. life. She has a, a tangible legacy, but what do you think she wanted her legacy to be at the time? What do you think she had a vision of? Oh, that's such a great question. And one of the things that I always get when I explain to people who I'm working on is like, because nobody knows really who she is. And then you mentioned the deck and they're like, oh, and then you, even if you show them some of her other art, they have often seen it, but they just don't connect it. And I really feel, I feel like Coleman Smith would be happy of the, importance that her images for the tarot deck have taken for sure i think that you know she would definitely be pleased that she's finally beginning to get the notoriety that she so desperately deserves however i do think she would also want people to be aware of all of her contributions the tarot imagery or iconography was important and i do think it was much more important to her personally than for a long time people believed it wasn't just a very big job for very little cash that she dashed off to get you know pay the rent it was very much a culmination of her music visions of her own personal spiritual journey that connects i think through swedenborgism to her time with the occult to her catholicism 
Catholicism because she she was very focused on Catholicism, especially when she moved to Cornwall. She had a church, Our Lady of the Lizard, and she did have, it seems, a real devotion to Mary. And she was very interested in spirituality and visions in that regard as well. But I think she would have, you know, also wanted people to know about her suffrage work, about her press, about her illustrations, about her theater, about her Anansi stories, right? I don't think she would have liked it all just to be known for one thing. And I hope through my work and through the work of others, we're beginning to fill in some of these gaps. Yes. Well, well done, because I applaud that. Um, and actually, you talked you talk briefly about Blake earlier. I, I went to a William Blake exhibition recently at the Tate, and, and I can totally okay. see that same space being taken up by Pamela Combs-Smith's work. And the connections, what's really nice is when you see other artists that have influenced each other. And, you know, there was a Van Gogh exhibition recently and it talked a lot about Dickens and how Dickens had directly affected Van Gogh's work. So it's nice when you see artists in context like that and there's a real journey in style and what was happening around them. So, yeah, it's going to happen. I can see it. I'm doing a a Pamela now and visualising it. Was going to actually make it happen. If that's what you think she would have liked to have seen more recognition for, I mean, there's so many things there, but what do you think her relevance today is? When people come across her now, why do you think we should know about her in context of, of what's going on in the world today? Oh, I mean, again, that's such a great question. And I think one of the reasons, we talked a little bit about this before, but it's not just, I think, that she didn't have a more uh, savvy manager managing her career. I really do think that she was a woman before her time, right? The questions about her uh, racial makeup, um, she was gender nonconforming. I didn't really talk about this, but uh, for quite a large chunk of time, for about 15 years, she viewed herself as a pixie and was really interested in separating herself from more traditional ideas of feminine gender. She never married or had children. She did have a long-term companion at the end of her life. We don't know a lot, really almost nothing about her romantic relationships during the first 40 years of her life or so. Again, there's just a lot of things we don't know, but it, it does seem quite clear that she was not interested in heterosexual marriage and raising children, right? She wanted to do things her own way. She wanted to forge her own path. She was not afraid of calling things out that she thought was wrong. And she did not bow very much to social conventions. (laughs) And she wasn't afraid of offending people. And she definitely did. Somebody asked me, a question once about like if Pamela was alive today would she be on social media and like which one is a weird question but I do think she would be on Twitter because I feel like she would definitely <laughs> have hot takes on things and um and I'm honestly not on Twitter very much at all it's not my medium but I do think she is somebody who had flourished in the 21st century because I think a lot of social conventions and ideas about gender and sexuality have finally caught up to her lived experience right and that to me means that all of these things that you said and there's some fascinating moments in her life should all be made into a film and we should make it happen 
Hey, I would love that. I feel very strongly that it would she would be a perfect subject for a Netflix show or Amazon Prime or even like a more traditional film. Yeah, she could be. Hey. There's enough there for a series, definitely. Yeah, and, you know, there really is. my dream is is that Heroin City becomes an anthology series. So each season is a different woman. So for me done so you and I need to start writing now so we'll start you know mapping that out because there's no way that all these amazing as well bit players she's got in her orbit you know around Mm -hmm. her it's yeah it's brilliant so many we only have talked about like a small handful yeah brilliant okay well we'll save it for the for the script but there isn't anything have you ever noticed her come up in any uh tv or film nothing no. Not to my knowledge, no. Right, we'll, we'll be the first. Fine, we'll do that. There's a lot to do after this podcast, but we're going to do it in, in Pamela's name. So on a lighter note, we have a, a few questions here. First one is, do you have a favourite Pamela Coleman-Smith anecdote? Oh, there's so many of them. <laughs> That's good. Um, <laughs> Uh, actually, maybe I told you the one before about the feeble females. We didn't really talk about her suffrage work. And so I will say that uh, I went to the Women's Library at the London School of Economics and was looking through all of their materials. And it was well known that there was two Pamela Coleman-Smith postcards that were connected to the suffrage at TA, right? Because they're signed P.S. And one is a bird in the hand and the other one is, but they are clearly marked. And um, the suffrage at TA, which was a pretty uh, important and large group of suffrage artists, were also interested in like teaching women how to do art and how to make banners for perse- suffrage processions and other things like that. And so I found a bunch of postcards when I was there that were hers. I'm like positive, just due to connections between the others. But I also found some letters that she had wrote, some of them signed by her, but some of them, her handwriting is very large and very bad and very distinctive. And as somebody who also has poor handwriting, I I sympathize, but I also had figured out over many years how to read it. She was living in Plumstead at the time, and she had organized a small group of women, working class women, to travel from Plumstead, which was a significant journey at the time, to Royal Albert Hall for a suffrage meeting, a suffrage rally. And they were promised car fare, and they didn't get it. And rather than just, you know, letting it go, she kept demanding it. And she kept writing all of these letters being like, you need to give us our money. Like, this isn't fair. This is exploitative. Um, And to me, that really encapsulates who she was. Also, when she met Yates for the first time, she wrote in a letter to her friend that there was like two Yates, the Yates at the tea party that she first met. He just had a very hoity-toity air and he was kind of a jerk. And then when he started talking about mythology and Irish history, he came alive. I think that was the part of Yeats that she really was fascinated by. And um, she loved mythology because again, myth to her, like the Anansi folktales, were all part of this kind of flow of ideas and connections that she didn't view as separate traditions, right? That she really felt, and this was not something that was unique to her, that there were, and she was very interested in the connections between Irish myth and Afro-Jamaican Anansi stories, and then later, you know, some of these other strands even more. Okay, if she was a superhero, what would her superpower be? <laughs> oh, gosh, shape-shifting, right? Oh, she would wow. totally be able to shape-shift into a pixie and, um, 
and maybe go and maybe telekinesis. I just saw Dr. Strange over the weekend with my son because he's a huge Dr. Strange fan. And um, yeah, something like that. Not flying, not lasers. I don't know. But shape-shifting, I think. That makes absolute sense. I can see it. Okay. And then if she had uh, a highest score and a lowest score at top trumps, what would you say they were? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> Give us the category. Uh, because she was always trying to do too many things, and then she would get exhausted by them. There's a lot of discussion about how she was, like, hand-coloring, like, 100 images, and then she would just collapse. Um, and she was always, like, the amount of, in brief spurts, she was insanely prolific. 1898 to like 1901 she did like something like 10 different projects and then she did all of the green chief kind of by herself i mean she obviously had a lot of other contributors there's a lot of what i think is pseudonymous contributors which was common at the time right with just initials and i think some of those were her and she also did she did sign some things as ps so i think speed like she was always wanting to do too much and so you know, if she could do that. I don't know if that really answers the question. Um, basically, just her strength and her Achilles heel is what we're asking for. So, I, I okay. mean, it could be like she had intuition. So maybe something like intuition yeah. would be she'd score like a 10. Something like that. She definitely, she was very intuitive. Yeah. Um, and she she does talk about having the gift of second sight. There you go. Her Achilles heel, yeah. her inability to keep her mouth shut when maybe she should <laughs> how why'd you say that just because she'd t- tell people what she thought and then and create yeah she's not very tactful and i think it did did cause her some harm but honestly it's also a strength though right maybe maybe a better way to put it to think about it was to think about her uh refusal to conform to expectations that she did not believe in That's she wasn't cool. one to suffer fool and like you say you can frame it as a strength and you can frame it as a weakness Either way, yeah. you can yeah, yeah. say tactfulness, zero, or two, or whatever, <laughs> one, two. Or you could say um, single-mindedness and you score high. Exactly. So. And were and she it, a man, it, we would we be talking about this differently? Well, that's exactly what I was just going to say, right? All of these characteristics that we're talking about, are they weaknesses? Are they strengths? There would definitely be strengths if she was male-identifying at that time. They just would be. And I think that speaks to one of the reasons why she isn't as well-known and that even though she was briefly successful, her success was not long-lasting, especially after World War One. Mm. She's, she's acutely aware of this and hence why, yeah. you know, she, she doesn't want to even be described in that way. She's a pixie. Yeah. So she yeah. wants to be whoever she wants to be. She's trying to, to do her own thing, right? And Pixie, I don't know if we talked about this, that was a name that Ellen Terry actually gave her pretty early on. Because again, speaking to her just otherness, right? But that Coleman Smith then really uh, grabbed onto and tried to create an identity for herself, right? That was gender nonconforming, that was a trickster figure. She was fascinated by trickster figures, right? And there's a lot of connections between Pixies and Anansi and then some other Irish figures as well. Now I'm seeing her as a Batman character, but you know, <laughs> not necessarily good or bad. She's just working her way through, doing all sorts of things, getting up to all sorts of mischief. But yes, mischievous. She definitely would have elements. She'd be one of those, like, transitional figures that they always try to resurrect like she would be she had the potential to be evil but then she would be at heart good 
Okay, on that note, I think we should end there. And for those of you that are interested in finding out more about Pamela Coleman-Smith, I don't blame you. And you can follow the links that we're going to put online so that you can um, deep dive into her work and and everything she she did, which is fantastic and phenomenal. So thank you so much for being with us today, Elizabeth. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And I feel like we could talk for hours, but I think we will because we've got to write that screenplay now. So that's all all good. We'll, We'll connect again and do it again. But thank you very much. And we'll speak to you again soon, hopefully. Yeah. Have a great day. 